The title we're working off of today is Freedom Squandered. How much time do we have left? Here's a picture of men gathered in Philadelphia. In Philadelphia at the Continental Congress, the future of America was hanging in the balance, if you will. 13 colonies trying to decide, should they or should they not plead for their independence from Great Britain? Do you remember what catapulted them into this? Well, different historians might say different things, but a lot of it had to do with taxation without representation. You've heard that too. Okay. Originally, the delegates urged for Richard Henry Lee to write the Declaration of Independence, but Lee was appointed to the conference, or sorry, Confederate Committee, and he couldn't serve on both. And as fate would have it, his wife got sick. He had to rush home. And so the actual Declaration of Independence was placed upon five individuals, but really it came down to three, John Adams, Benjamin Franklin, and Thomas Jefferson to write it. But the actual Declaration of Independence was back and forth between Adams and Jefferson. Who should do it? And in some letters that Adams wrote to a friend Pickering, we find this dialogue. Jefferson proposed to Adams to make a draft. And Adams says, I will not. And Jefferson said, you should do it. Oh, no, 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 he said. Eventually, one of the reasons Lee gave to not do it, or Lee, or sorry, John Adams, I should say, he says, I am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. You are very much otherwise. Besides, you're a better writer than I am. And so Jefferson consented, all right, I'm going to hammer out a first draft and we'll bring it together and we'll see what everybody thinks. And so for the next two weeks, at 33 years old, Thomas Jefferson hammered out the Declaration of Independence. He was not at his home. He didn't have his library before him. He wasn't trying to set out to do something huge and, and independent and to set a benchmark, if you will. He just very humbly states, I was trying to bring common sense into the discussion. Yet when he brought his proposal on July 2, with very few changes necessary, in bulk, what he wrote was taken and they said, yes, this is what we want. And we celebrated on the 4th of July because that's after a few of the little adjustments were made. They came back together and they voted it. And so now every 4th of July, we do the firework thing and go to the lake and whatever else. But today I want to look at a little bit, if you will, what is the context leading up to, if you will, what's some of the thinking behind the document that Thomas Jefferson and these men put together in terms of this time period, 1776. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Revelation chapter 13. Now, we're not going to piece or pick apart, if you will, piece by piece, all of Revelation 13. And in order for the message today, I'm going to have to make some pretty large assumptions that you understand Revelation 13. If you do not, we're going to break this thing down in our evangelistic series here in a few months, and I would invite you to that. If you don't want to wait that long, talk to Pastor Hyman or myself. We can get together and have a Bible study with you. But just to look over some of the high points, Revelation 13, verse 1, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, 
And I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns, and on his horns ten crowns, and on his heads a blasphemous name. And he's described as a leopard with feet of a bear, mouth of a lion, skipping down, had power, verse 2, and his throne, his great authority. And I saw one of his heads as if it had been mortally wounded. Mortal means death. And his deadly wound was healed. And all, notice, all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshiped the dragon who gave authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? Verse 5, he was given a mouth to speak great things and blasphemies. And he was given authority to continue for 42 months. We know this to be the same as three and a half years or 1260 days. Skipping down to verse 7, it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. Verse 8, all global again who dwell on the earth will worship him. And it ends with a call in verse 10. Here's the patience and faith of the saints. Now for hundreds of years it has been accepted that this beast of revelation the only thing that can follow all of these the authority from pagan Rome a worldwide religious power claims equality with God persecuting power reigns for 1260 years and the number of his name 666 you study and put various pieces together and everybody scholars have agreed for decades this is Rome this is the papacy Now let's take that piece of 1,260 years. This is when we had large persecution, didn't we? We could say we had the opposite, the antithesis of religious liberty. You recognize some of these faces of reformers who stood up to that system. John Huss is one of them. Now John Huss was accused by false witnesses He had not broken any civil laws. He was tried for religious convictions of his conscience. How would you like that? He was subjected to subhuman prison squalor for months without due process. And he was judged by the church in a similar fashion that the Sanhedrin had judged Jesus. Religious leaders pronounced the death penalty. And the church appealed to the civil power to ratify their conclusion. John Huss was significantly mistreated by, because of his own religious convictions, not because of some civil law that he broke, but because of a belief that he held that was contrary to the church. Listen to this description of his time in prison. After a short while, Huss was led out of his dungeon into a decent chamber, but his feet almost refused to carry him. He swayed as he walked, listless and unused, To the day was the light of his eyes, deathly pale his cheeks, and loose what was left of his teeth, since eleven had fallen out due to the damp prison. Says the nails on his fingers were terribly long, because he had been unable to bite them off. For many weeks upon upon his skin was a crust of dirt, which uh, exuded an awful stench, and his otherwise brown hair fell in white ringlets. Upon his rotting and torn garb. His shoes had rotted upon his feet, and his shirt and loincloth had vanished. The rounded flesh which had covered his bones had shrunken and shriveled, and he had become a picture of woe without equal. Unrecognizable to those who had known him before. Horror filled those who looked upon him, and pitying people prepared a bath for him. 
brought shirt and clothing and refreshed him with strengthening foods for which he could only thank with tearful eyes. And there you have the source. That gives you a bit of a picture, not a nice picture, of what the lack of religious liberty brings out. The worst of people and the most inhumane treatment of individuals. Case of Huss, the vote was 31, found him not guilty. 11 thought he should be excommunicated, but 45 said, no, he needs to die. And so, sure enough, he was burned at the stake. But during this time period, they would use other means as well. I'm trying to present this in a way that won't be too frightening to some. If I'm saying this right, the strapado, is that how you say it? Where they would tie their wrists behind their back, lift them up, and then drop them. And right before they hit the ground, they would tighten the rope again. And since their arms were behind them, the idea was to dislocate their arms and their shoulders and cause some pain. There was a whipping post. This is a more recent picture, but the hands were put in stocks and their bare back was exposed. They had no place to go, nothing to do. And they'd be whipped sometimes 50 to 200 times. Are you willing to recant your religious convictions now? This one was known as the rack, where they would stretch the body. Their shoulders, elbows, thighs, and ankles were slowly dislocated as more tension was placed on those rods and turning those chains. The garret, an individual would sit in the chair, they would be tied They'd put a noose around the neck, and then that long wheel in the back would tighten that noose tighter and tighter and tighter. This was what was taking place in this awful period, 538 to 1798. This is what was taking place as the men were meeting in Philadelphia. The Constitutional Fathers knew all about the history of the Inquisition, And they were also aware of how similar practices could be seen even here in America, in the new colonies. They were aware that atheists and Jews and Quakers, Baptists and others were deprived of their civil rights. Simply because their practices did not square with those of the established Puritan religion. The founders knew all about Sunday laws that compelled people to attend church on pain of fines, lashes, imprisonment, and in case of three colonies, even death. They knew that only members of the established church were allowed to serve in civil government. They knew that pastors of the established churches were remunerated from taxes collected by the government from the people. They knew about Roger Williams being banished from Massachusetts Bay Colony in the dead of winter. Why? For his views concerning the separation of church and state. This is here on this soil. He founded the colony of Rhode Island with its capital, Providence, and believed in a militant faith. What is that? In which the spiritual weapons used were preaching, persuasion, and prayer. That's a militant faith. Somehow, I think militant faith has gone to bed. We don't persuade anymore. We don't preach strong sermons anymore. We just want to have everything business as usual, soft and cozy, make me feel good preacher. We're not trying to convince anyone because 
After all, we don't want to offend anyone, and we certainly don't want to be labeled for hate speech. And so the militant faith has largely gone to sleep. Similar to Revelation 13, 11, he said that when a follower of Christ advocates persecution against those who disagree with him, he is guilty of the language of the dragon and a lamb's lip. We'll get to those verses in a moment. And so the founding documents of the United States are clearly of divine origin, I believe. As they see the signs of the times around them, and they respond in such a way that, according to Jefferson, was just common sense. And so just for your recollection here, 1776 was the Declaration of Independence. And in that, it affirms that all men are created equal and have certain inalienable rights. What's inalienable? Unable to be taken away. And what are those rights? Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Sadly, this week, as Frank already alluded to, those rights were taken away from somebody. Who were they taken away from? The unborn. 30 minutes later, after the child is born, if I strangle it to death, I'll serve time. But if we do it before it's born, and it's all been couched under, it's your body, it's your choice. Never mind, there's another life involved. What happened to the inalienable right of life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness? What happened to that pursuit of happiness for that child, that unborn baby? 1787, the Constitution was voted. A few years later, the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments, if you will. And the first amendment states, Congress shall make no law respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof or abridging the freedom of speech or of the press or the right of the people peaceably to assemble and to petition the government for redress of grievances. Nobody petitions the government anymore. We've become too big. It's going to get lost. So nobody writes their senator, nobody writes their congressman, nobody speaks up. Why? Again, because our religious liberty, if we pay any attention at all, is slowly eroding right out from under us. Because if you speak with free speech, be careful, because it'll be hate speech. Be careful, you'll be a bigot. Be careful, there'll be a target on your back. Now, again, we're not trying to advocate that we legislate morality. We don't think the government needs to strong arm people. But what happened to the militant faith that speaks up and speaks out about what we believe to be true? And where is the Christian church in this conversation? It's asleep. Who is doing all the talking? Not the Christian church. By and large. So by the time you get to 1798, the United States clearly recognized as a world power. Oh, and here's the First Amendment, but I already read it to you, so we'll skip over that. Let's go to Revelation chapter 13, because we have another beast. And every time there's a a power, if you will, that makes a significant contribution, we see it in prophecy. And here we have another example. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. And he had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercises all, how much? All the authority of the first beast in his presence. Caused the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. 
Now, if we study out this beast, which we're not going to take a lot of time to do, we've done that before. We know it's arising around 1798, which is the end of the 1,260-year prophecy. Arising in a relatively unpopulated area. Uh, No crowns on its horns is significant. Number four, it would be a young nation. Number five, it would rise to a position of worldwide power and influence. What is the only nation that fits this description? The United States. And the United States Constitution guarantees both civil and religious freedom to all of its citizens. Friends, this is what sets us apart. Now, we just read here in verse 11 that there were two horns, two powers, two kingdoms. And Adventists have often been accused of being inconsistent because they feel that the two horns represent two principles rather than two kingdoms or two powers. And we say that our nation is founded on civil and religious liberty. Well, in other places in Daniel and Revelation, we teach that horns are kingdoms. But really, there's no inconsistency at all. What we have are two principles of civil and religious liberty that are, in fact, two distinguishable, separate kingdoms within a single nation. But just like the ram represented one nation that was composed of two kingdoms, remember the ram, the Medes and the Persians, so here the two horns represent two separable kingdoms within a single nation. So we have the precedent, and it follows through. And what two kingdoms did Jesus recognize when he was here? He said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Clearly, Jesus recognizes this coexistence of two kingdoms, even in his day. The first was the civil power of Rome, or the state, but the second was the spiritual kingdom of God, or the church. Jesus also said, my kingdom is not of this world. Here's the same idea. There's a spiritual kingdom and there's a worldly or civil kingdom. And that is what characterizes this nation from the beginning. Sometimes we use these big words, republicanism. That's a representative civil government. And Protestantism, representative religious government. Those are the two principles that this nation was founded on. But you recall during the Middle Ages, civil matters were all imposed by a king. Religious matters were dictated and enforced by the Pope. It was a top-down model. But our constitutional fathers established a revolutionary upside-down system of government that followed from the bottom up. A government of the people, by the people, and for the people in which citizens could enjoy full civil and religious liberty. The foundational idea behind this concept was that of two kingdoms in one nation, with each power separate from one another. Great Controversy 441 says, Among the Christian exiles who first fled to America and sought an asylum from royal oppression, the oppression of the state, and priestly intolerance, an oppressive church were many who determined to establish a government upon the broad foundation of civil state and religious church liberty. Their views found place in the Declaration of Independence, which sets forth the great truth that all men are created equal and endowed with the inalienable right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
And the Constitution guarantees to the people the right of self-government, providing that representatives elected by the popular vote shall enact and administer the laws. Freedom of religious faith was also granted, every man being permitted to worship God according to the dictates of his or her conscience. Republicanism, a state without a king, and Protestantism, a church without a pope, became the fundamental principles of this great nation. And then she closes with this. These principles are the secret of its power and prosperity. Do you believe that? So the question is, will these historic freedoms ever be challenged? Or is it just business as usual? And does the book of Revelation describe events that will lead up to the erosion of religious liberty, this union of church and state? We better go back. Revelation chapter 13, verse 11. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. And he exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence and caused the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs that he even makes fire come down from heaven on the earth in the sight of men. And he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs in which he was granted to do in sight of the beast telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image, make a likeness of, if you will, to the beast who was wounded by the sword and lived. And he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image. There's the issue again. Five times the word worship already in chapter 13. Whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed, verse 16, he caused all both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave to receive a mark on his right hand or on their foreheads and that no man may buy or sell except one who has the mark of the name, of the character, if you will, of the beast or of the number of his name. Let him who has understanding calculate the number of the beast for it is the number of a man. His number is 666. This is an article that I found this week. It says Pope Benedict XVI, and it talks about his agenda. He served from 2005 to 2013 when he stepped down. But in this article, it's probably too small for you to read. It says, on the day after his election as Pope, Pope Benedict XVI said that his primary commitment would be working tirelessly toward the full and visible unity of all Christ's followers. Does that sound like exercising all the authority of the first beast. Of course, he stepped down in 2013, and we got a new pope, Pope Francis, described by CNN and many other places for his simplicity and for his humility and for kissing babies. And when asked, well, what do you think about uh, homosexuality and so on? He simply says, who am I to judge gay people and so on? We have people marching here in this country. Bigotry disguised as religious liberty is still bigotry. See what they're doing to the freedom of speech. If you have an opinion that's not ours, we'll lambast you. But this Pope is incredibly popular with the young people. He says the right thing. The first year that he was there, he was Time Magazine Person of the Year in 2013. Uh, And as World News points out, he's the first Jesuit Pope possibly renewing, signaling a renewed emphasis on traditional Catholic theology by the church. Why is that possibly significant? Turn to great controversy again throughout Christendom. Protestantism was menaced by formidable foes. The first triumphs of the Reformation passed. Rome summoned new forces 
hoping to accomplish its destruction. What are they hoping to destroy? Protestantism. It's becoming a problem. What are we going to do? Let's form a committee. What's the committee going to be about? At this time, the order of the Jesuits was created, the most cruel, unscrupulous, and powerful of all the champions of popery. Theirs was, there was no crime too great for them to commit, no deception too base for them to practice, no disguise too difficult for them to assume. Vowed to perpetual poverty and humility, it was their steady aim to secure wealth and power to be devoted to the overthrow of Protestantism and the reestablishment of papal supremacy. When appearing as members of their order, they wear a garb of sanctity, visiting prisons and hospitals, ministering to the sick and the poor, professing to have renounced the world and bearing the sacred name of Jesus, who went about doing good, but under his blameless exterior, the most criminal and deadly purposes were often concealed. The Jesuits rapidly spread themselves over Europe, and wherever they went, there followed a revival of popery. Do we see a revival of popery? I'm trying to just review some of these things because we've talked about them before. This is February 2014. Tony Palmer said to Kenneth Copeland and a crowd of Pentecostal ministers, Brothers and sisters, Luther's protest is over. The Catholic Church hasn't changed anything. None of his doctrines have gone away. They're still as unbiblical as they ever were. But the protest, he says, is over. And then he brings this speech that he says he recorded on his iPhone or something from the Pope. And he says, let's give each other a spiritual hug and let God complete the work that he has begun. And so then he films Copeland responding with this blessing to the Pope. And then he says, heaven is thrilled over this. This is Protestantism folks. Tony Palmer here, he believed that Protestants, it says, Tony Palmer and Pope Francis believe Protestants are spiritual racists is the title. And you can watch that on on YouTube. It's an interesting thing, but he does say spiritual racists. Are you a spiritual racist? (laughs) Amen. That's the labeling that's going on. And so effectively, they're trying to take away and muzzle our free speech. I don't want to be a racist. I better just quiet down and just go along. Of course, you know, Boehner invites Pope Francis to address Congress just a few weeks after that. This is in March of 2014. Uh, Obama goes and meets with him. Joel Osteen meets with Pope Francis on June 8 of 2014. This is the church that Joel Osteen pastors, 16,000 people in attendance every week. And then there's, we have Rick Warren and others gathering together and high-fiving with the Pope. Associate Press, Pope says, no work Sunday's good, not just for the faithful. This is July 5 of 2014. Then we have his encyclical, the planet is at a breaking point, says Pope Francis, June 2015. Is he setting something up? What's in the encyclical? Sunday, like the Jewish Sabbath, is meant to be a day which heals our relationships with God, with ourselves, with others, and with the world. Doesn't that sound nice? Pope encourages the people to bring healthy pressure to bear on those who wield political, economic, and social power. Pressure for what? Sunday. We need this. Now, folks, do people need the Sabbath? Yes. But do we need it according to how it's coming this way? But does that follow what we read right here? It wasn't that long ago. People are saying, I don't see how this could ever happen. Can you say that anymore? We use this in evangelism forever. 
This is the Catholic record, September 1, 1923. Sunday is our, what's the word? Mark of authority. The church is above the Bible, and, and this transference of Sabbath observance is proof of that fact. We did it. Proof's in the pudding, they say. Great Controversy 592. Even in free America, rulers and legislators, in order to secure public favor, where's the push coming from? The people. To secure public favor will yield to the popular demand for law enforcing Sunday observance. It's going to happen. It's coming. Our religious liberty is at stake. Maranatha 179 says, Protestants will throw their whole influence and strength on the side of the papacy. By a national act enforcing the false Sabbath, they will give life and vigor to the corrupt faith of Rome, reviving her tyranny and oppression of conscience. Why does it need to be revived? Why does it need to be given life and vigor? Because it was mortally wounded. Not anymore. This will be an act of Congress, giving Rome life again. And how does this nation respond? Well, our president at the time says, I welcome His Holiness Pope Francis encyclical and deeply admire the Pope's decision to make the case clearly, powerfully, and with full moral authority. Full moral authority of his position for action on global climate change. That was the White House response in June of 2015. This took place on June 28, 2015. Pope apologized to the Waldensians. For those of you who think that the great controversy is, is not a book that's worth reading, there's nothing in there that's applicable, it's outdated, it's antiquated. Here's a quote, page 571. The Roman church now presents a fair front to the world, over, uh, covering with apologies her record of horrible cruelties. In my book, I put a little box and I put, check. Is the great country becoming less relevant or more relevant? It's happening before our eyes. And the church's response. You remember this. We're going to go fast through this. This was in September of 2015. He visits the White House to meet the president. They go out there and they greet him. He's out there in front of the White House. He's giving speeches and they're clapping. They're waving from the, the front and so on. The U.S. Capitol then, joint session of Congress to House and the Senate. I mean, this is an appalling picture to me. Look at all these people standing and applauding. Boehner can't even keep it together. Then we have United Nations in New York, a general assembly. Is he hitting all the hot points here? There he is again, up on the screens, addressing a large group of individuals. Then he goes to Philadelphia, the birthplace of the United States. And there's masses of people crowded around. And he's delivering a speech from Independence Hall. And people are trying to benefit and sell t-shirts. I love Pope Francis. Show the Pope some love. Great Controversy 297. The union of the church with the state. Be the degree never so slight. While it may appear to bring the world nearer to the church. What does it do? In reality it brings the church nearer to the world. Here's the headline. Pope Francis says, obstinate Christians are rebels and idolaters. That was in January of 2016. This one says, Catholics and Methodists walking together in service to the world. That's in April 2016. 
We probably could go on and on with these types of things. Even just this week, a week of prayer concluded. And part of that week of prayer, he said this, ecumenism is not something optional. What does that mean? Well, he says it another way in case you don't get it. Christian unity is not optional. The church is coming together is not optional. And again, this week of prayer just ended literally yesterday, the 25th of this month. He goes on to say, Christian unity aims to develop a common and consistent witness that promotes true justice and support for the weakest through responses that are concrete, appropriate, and effective. Again, this year we are called to pray so that all Christians may once again be a single family according to God's will so that they may all be one, quoting John 17. Let's just all come together. It's God's will. Let's be one big family. Do you see the wall and the separation between church and state crumbling? So we can ask the question, well, what am I to do? Great Controversy 571 says, She has clothed herself in Christ-like garments, but she's unchanged. Every principle of the papacy that existed in past ages exists today. The papacy that Protestants are now so ready to honor is the same that ruled the the world in the days of the Reformation. Friends, go home and read this in its context. Go get your great controversy. If you don't have one, we'll get you one before you leave. Turn to chapter 35 and read all the way through liberty of conscience threatened. Well, I've already read it. Read it again. She goes on. Protestants little know what they are doing when they propose to accept the aid of Rome and the work of Sunday exaltation. While they are bent upon the accomplishment of their purpose, Rome is aiming to reestablish her power. And what does she do when her power is reestablished? It says her former persecutions will be repeated. Is that you saying that, Pastor? No, that's really, that's Ellen White saying it. But here, it's the Bible saying it, isn't it? Didn't we just read? Exercise all the authority of the first beast? All that do not worship to be killed? Small and great, rich or poor, free or slave to receive a mark? And what do they claim to be their mark? Sunday sacredness. So again, we come back to the question, what are we to do? Well, for most, this is the common response. Just lay back in your hammock, take a nap. Well, why? Because, Pastor, I got peace. I've read Great Controversy. I know these things are going to happen. I've read chapter 13. I know it's going to happen. I know the Lord's going to come. What am I going to do? Can I stop prophecy? No. So I'm just going to sit back, kick back, sip some lemonade. Sally, this is the same posture that you see in many of our churches today. Dare I say, remnant churches today. Sit back. Don't make any waves. Don't try and be different. Don't use the word remnant. Don't talk about our differences. Only talk about our likes. Now, there's a time when you're trying to make relationships and form relationships. You don't lead with those points to offend people on purpose unnecessarily. But folks, we have a special identity and calling for this hour, and it's not to take a nap. Testimony, volume 5, page 7, 13, and 14. We are not ready for the issue to which the enforcement of the Sunday law will bring us. We're not ready. 
It is our duty as we see the signs approaching, signs of approaching peril, to arouse to action. Let none sit in calm expectation of the evil, comforting themselves with the belief that the work must go on because prophecy is foretold and that the Lord will shelter his people. Says we are not doing the will of God if we sit in quietude, doing nothing to preserve liberty of conscience. Now you read on. She understands it's going to happen. She understands it's going to be overwhelming in the sense that at some point, It's going to take over. But for us to sit back and do nothing, she says, we're not doing the will of God. We are to stand up and be counted, to use our voice, to have again a militant faith of preaching and persuasion and Bible study. But, eh, it's inconvenient. I don't really have time. What are people going to think about me? I'm going to be the crazy at work. I don't want to be the crazy at work. I already bring lentils for lunch and they think I'm crazy. This will just be one more thing. Friends, I don't think any of us in this room, probably, maybe there's a few, but I'd say by and large, most of us in this room, including myself, have no idea what we have in religious liberty because we've always had it. We were born into it. We don't have family members that have been tortured for their faith and for their beliefs and for their convictions. And we just think it's this right that we'll always have and will never go away. And so our freedom is being squandered because we're just sitting back and taking a nap with this precious gift that God gave to this nation and this country, raised them up from nothing to promote a message around the world. But we're asleep. When Russia opened up relatively recently, Elizabeth's family went over there and Mark Finley, they had a bunch of of big campaigns and and did all kinds of things. And all these atheistic people were just starving for the gospel. They were hungry for it. And they were just coming out in flocks and groves and, and people were studying and learning. But we think in this country, well, people could care less. Friends, I think right here under our noses are people that are starving for truth. They're starving for answers. They're starving for a sense of purpose in life other than the newest gadget and going to some vacation that everybody's already been on and posted pictures of anyway. They want something deeper. And it's our task. It's our great commission to share it with them. And here in this country, God has given us religious liberty to do just that. We don't have to smuggle our Bibles We don't have to pass little pieces of scripture. We don't have to study in a circle at a meal with little pieces of scripture in front of us. And when the big banging knock comes at the door, everybody has to ingest their piece of paper. Otherwise, well, otherwise. That's never been us. And so we have this lackadaisical approach. John 9, 4, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. How come? For the night is coming. And as much as you think you know when it's coming, I have a hunch you're going to be a little bit surprised. The final moments will be rapid ones. How many of you saw this thing coming this week with the abortion issue? I didn't. How many of you saw the legalization of gay marriage coming and then the whole White House 
in, in, in gay pride colors? I didn't. How many saw this big recession when, when the whole economy almost collapsed overnight and you and I just went to sleep thinking it was another day? I didn't see it. It's going to happen so quickly and so rapidly and what we have taken for granted will be gone along with our opportunities to share. No, I must work while it is day. In the presentation of truth, they must manifest, and I think this is so important, the love and meekness and gentleness of Christ. I hope nobody leaves here thinking, the pastor told us to take our Bibles and beat people over the head. That's not what I'm saying. In love, in meekness, in gentleness, like Christ is how we're supposed to share. But I love this quote, let the truth do the cutting. Well, pastor, I'm just so scared because the next lesson and and they're going to think it's hate speech and and they're not going to accept it and they're going to throw out me and all the rest. Well, they're not really throwing out you. They're throwing out the Bible and the truth and all those kinds of things. But you don't have to say it. You have to say, let's let's go to this verse and, and read it. What do you think it's saying? Let the Holy Spirit do the work. Let the truth do the cutting. God never called us to do the cutting. The word of God is as sharp as two-edged sword and will cut its way to the heart. That's the miracle of conversion. When a heart has been pierced with the truth of the everlasting gospel, not a version of the gospel, but the everlasting gospel. And the Holy Spirit is still alive and active today and he longs to be used. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are napping. Second Corinthians 5.20, Lauren did such a great job. She didn't know until this morning she had scripture reading. Oh, to grow up in a pastor's home. I'm sorry, Lauren. She's such a good sport. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. What does it mean to be an ambassador? You know what an ambassador is. They're stationed in a specific country. We have ambassadors in, in virtually most countries around the world. And their responsibility is to take the pulse of the country's political climate. And they're supposed to represent the interests of the United States. Friends, we are ambassadors, but we're not ambassadors to the United States. We're ambassadors to our Heavenly Father. And we need to take the pulse of this country. And we need to rightly represent our God. As though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Are you imploring anyone on Christ's behalf to be reconciled to God? Are you studying scripture with anyone? Are you sharing your faith with anyone? It just starts with a simple Bible study, a simple verse, a simple question. Well, they might reject me. They will. Let me give you a little bit of training. I know we're past time. They will. People will. But not all of them will. 
So you do it in kindness, you do it in love, you do it as Christ did, and if they say, I don't want anything to do with that, and if you bring that up again, sure, no problem, sorry. And we let it go, we go to somebody else. We look for the ripe fruits, right? The Holy Spirit hasn't brought them to to ripeness yet, but then there'll be somebody else. I just prayed this morning that somebody would ask me, I said, God, if you're real, send somebody to study the Bible with me. I just prayed that this morning, and then you ask me at lunch? This is phenomenal. And those divine appointments are waiting for us. If we will simply pray, Lord, who do you want me to talk to today? Who do you want me to talk to today? Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Friends, our time is short. How short? I do not know, nor do you. But my challenge is let's not squander the freedom that God has given to us. Let's not simply take it for granted, assume it always will be there, but let's take advantage of today and today and today until he comes. So that when Jesus comes, we can look fully into his face, knowing we have done the work that he has called us to do. Dear Heavenly Father, that is our hope today. Or or, or to be available for you to use us is our prayer. Because of that hope that we have in Jesus Christ. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.